Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to violence, the word and the act. While violence cloaks itself in a plethora of disguises, its favorite mantle still remains sex. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill. Starring Tora Satana. I never try anything. I just do it. Like I don't beat clocks. Just people. Wanna try me? Laurie Williams. Oh, you're cute. Like a velvet glove cast in iron. And like the gas chamber, Barla, a real fun gal. Haji. Honey, we don't like nothing, so. Everything with us is have. And Stuart Lancaster. They let them vote, smoke, and drive. Even put them in pants. So what do you get? A, a Democrat for president. A lot of smoke up your chimney. Russian roulette on the highway. You can't even tell brother from sister. Unless you meet him head on. Directed by Russ Meyer. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. It's the podcaster who's the legal age for whiskey, voting, and loving. It's Gally in Glasgow. All right, you washed. Now I'm gonna spin dry you. <laughs> it's Devlin in London. Right, Fender Einstein. It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, hello, gang, and hello, listeners, and welcome back. Unfortunately, we are we are a um, we're a we're a podcaster down, aren't we? Um, Patrick unable to make uh, make this episode, so we dedicate this to you, Patrick. Um, currently very, very busy uh, on a production that we cannot name. Uh, so there we go. Fantastic. Uh, how how are we all doing? I mean, listeners, I'd say I should really be asking this to the listeners because if they have been following us attentively, which they, they always do, they're likely dead on the floor because they've they've had three hours and 50 minutes of pure devil in their ear. <laughs> I'm very sorry, everyone. Actually, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, that was the culmination of uh, uh, just too much, too much thinking. I, I, I was stuck with the, uh, I was stuck with Russ Meyer in my brain for so long that I had to just get it all out there. So now you've all got it as well. I wanted to pass on the brain rot. So is that part one of three? Is that the deal? No, no. Look, luckily that's not part one of three. So um, uh, this is part two. Uh, basically the plan was that I wanted to have what I was considering a primer episode. I, I wanted it to basically just be like a, an info dump of as much information as, as I could gather together about Russ Meyer in one place. Not, I, I want to go too in depth, although three hours and 50 minutes later, you could argue I failed in that effort. But, um, uh, the idea was also that me and Patrick, uh, uh, new Patrick, Patrick Crane, our wonderful guest, um, was going to help me select the what we considered to be the ideal on-ramp for a new viewer. So uh, quite quickly uh, during the episode, he mentioned that he thought that Faster Pussycat Kill Kill was the perfect uh, um, on-ramp into learning about Ross Meyer's films. Uh, so that was the decision that we were going to watch it together. I wanted to share that with you guys. And then hopefully there'll be a third episode later with, uh, with a friend of mine who runs a fantastic, um, Russ Meyer blog that I'm a big, big fan of. Uh, so fingers crossed that will come up sometime in the near future. Uh, but 
but for now i just uh i wanted to i wanted to see what you guys made of made of all this yeah well i just want to make sure that everyone understands that this is a contractual obligation in order to maintain your presence on the show so you know russ meyer <laughs> has been living rent free in your head for this long this is a cathartic way of dispelling all of that right so we we are me matt and you are going to discuss seminal work what do we what do we call this one the most well-known difficult to say um this was something that that we discussed as well in the article i would say probably one of the two films that if you don't know much about him but you do know who he is this is one of the two films you would have come across oh literally this movie fast (laughs) (laughs) sorry about that one of many innuendos uh today sorry about that if you've got children (laughs) forgive me (laughs) <laughs> so we have uh fast the pussycat kill kill has a uh has probably the highest profile cult reputation alongside um beyond the valley of the dolls which has which honestly was was if it weren't this film uh that would have been the film we probably would have ended up watching even though there are films of his that i perhaps love a little more um these are matters of degrees and and these are definitely films that i feel like should be seen and um certainly i think that this is the film that if you're coming in cold i think this is i I agree with patrick this is the film to to go in for this this could very well be something that we continue right uh i think all of us have got um filmmakers that we admire admire their entire oeuvre so maybe this director series we love a series love 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 to start a series never finish it that's all all (laughs) it's really fun to announce them and then you realize you have to do all the hard work that comes along exactly. with it. Exactly. Exactly. So um hopefully hopefully this will be the start of a, of a new a new series on the show. Um but genuinely Devlin I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, I will just pass my uh, my thanks to Patrick for his time and his insights uh, which I felt was a really good context for me as a first time Russ Meyer viewer. So um you know before I normally ask. I normally ask everyone what their experiences are. I think it's probably safe to say um, I'll answer my own question. I had zero. Really knew the name, but um, to be honest with you, it didn't even have a connotation, positive or negative. Just heard okay. the name Russ Meyer. It's quite a. It's quite a good name actually, uh, as mm-hmm. far as like a filmmaking name. It kind of sounds like a filmmaker, Russ Meyer. Um, but I, I also just knew from you through osmosis, but I'd never actually seen any of his movies so this is a first time look at the man's work um so i'm looking forward to discussing my thoughts and hearing yours uh, about the movie matt you the same then this was a late night channel five i suspect in their early days at least their manifesto seemed to be cheap and cheerful and sleazy and this would mean erotic thrillers galore between the daily episodes of rubbish soap family affairs seedy softcore shows like The Red Shoe Diaries and Compromising Situations. They had some football, but mostly the cups no one cared about and a few England World Cup qualifiers. I was either aware of this purely because of the title or promised action from a lurid trailer, but either way I was tuned in and ready to experience something a bit naughty. At first, I didn't recall it being in black and white. I think my memory had muddled it up with one of Maya's other films, or even another film entirely. I did remember the opening, Go Go Dancing, 
but I didn't hang in there for long as the promised erotica as such never appeared. It was hardly Betty Blue, nudity from the outset stuff, which had primed me for the possibilities of late night foreign films. And I likely channel hopped somewhere else. It was probably a bit too weird for me. Also, I'm not sure my taste in women expanded to these kinds of Maya specimens back then. I was probably more some girl from Neighbours or Home and Away or Hollyoaks or something than this. How about you, Devlin? Do you have any first experiences with this one specifically? Yeah, with with this film. This was the first Russ Meyer film that I saw. So uh, I do have corroboration for this Channel 5 series. Apparently back in the kind of, in the, the, the heyday of the Friday night Channel 5 era, they ran a uh, a marathon. There was um, uh, firstly somebody who's on our, um, uh, what we used to do our Thursday night uh, watches during uh, during lockdown that Gally um, organized. One of the guys on there mentioned that he watched basically the entire uh, filmography over the course of, I guess they must have played it over, geez, it must have been months because if they played the entire over, you're, still, you're looking at, even if they only played the kind of the, the full fiction features, you're still looking at well over 10 movies. Um, but I, I had no experience of it back then. Uh, I did encounter Russ Meyer via the medium of Channel 5, though. It was on the Emily Booth hosted clips show Out There, which mm. I don't know if you guys remember that one. Yeah. I'm aware of yeah, her, was... but I don't think I ever saw the show. So it was like a compendium of, uh, I guess you would say like, cult cinema crazy cinema like uh, unusual films it would just be um like clips and they would of course given the channel and the era they would lean towards the slightly more prurient but there were still plenty of stuff that um that really seared into my memory from watching that tv show stuff like um you know the story of ricky and uh the ballad of ricky oh you know the uh the tremendous um uh prison set action movie where he punches the guts out of people and they push them back in that that film is remains a firm favorite to this day you had um uh stuff like the baby cart of the river sticks kind of lone wolf and cub stuff and uh, uh alongside that they played a clip from vixen and it was the sex scene with her brother and where part of it is shot from underneath the bed springs and the whole thing was just so kind of weird and fevered and and it was honestly unlike anything that i'd ever seen before but um it took me a long time to see the film faster pussy get kill kill was uh played at the star and shadow cinema in newcastle probably sometime around the late 2000s before i moved to london um and uh they had a little weekend of it um at the time i didn't realize just how rare uh screenings were of ross meyer movies there's myriad release issues which we'll get into but there was a um there was a, a public screening and it went down like absolute gangbusters um but i didn't see anything after that for a long time until uh, a couple of years ago when uh again my my, my friend uh lydia whose blog i i was reading i i read some of her work and i just kind of um yeah i found myself reading a a biography which again this is something i mentioned on the previous podcast a biography written by a writer called jimmy mcdonough called big bosoms and square jaws and i am even more of a sucker for stories about um like outside of filmmakers than i sometimes am for the films themselves i think i mean one of my favorite films of all time is ed wood and I think that there are parallels with Russ Meyer, not in um, 
talent as such, but certainly in the way that the films were put together and this kind of the drive of this guy to make exactly what he wants to make against all odds in the case of Russ Meyer against the boundaries of good taste and in Edward's case against the boundaries of his own lack of talent. For many of our listeners, they may not know a great deal about uh, Faster Pussycat. Kill! Kill! I don't know how to say the title, but I'm going to go with that one. Um, So, Devlin, you've got some big shoes to fill here. Story time. Could you please remind me, Matt, and the listeners of the plot for Faster Pussycat? Kill! Kill! Uh, I am going to uh, rely on the uh, the work of uh, Arrow Films here. I'm going to read the back of the DVD box because I don't think I could do better than this. Faster, pussycat. Kill! Kill! Is the story of a new breed of superwomen. Three buxom go-go girls, Vala, Rosie, and Billy, wildly dancing the Watusi before the leers and jeers and lecherous come-ons of their drooling all-male audience. The violence, implicit in the girls' teas, is quickly moved out of the microcosmic bar into the outside world as they literally let go of themselves. I'm not sure about what that means, but maybe when they're embarking bathing. on a yeah, <laughs> embarking on a wild, violent, deadly journey of vengeance on all men. Vala, the outrageously abundant karate master leader of the pack breaks the arms and back of one man, runs her Porsche over two others, grinds a fourth, a muscle man, against a wall, and eventually deliberately goes down the path of her own self-destruction, dragging her two buxotic cohorts with her. Very enticing. I think uh, I think if I'm going to take anything from Russ and his uh, his marketing strategy, maybe when we started the show, we should have come up with something a little bit more salacious as opposed to the rewind movie podcast you'd call it the rewind movie booby podcast or something like that either way and maybe just put an exclamation mark at the end it It would be terrible but um i'm sure someone's already done it to be fair um but yeah we should have definitely put an exclamation mark just to you know announce it yes and an ellipsis preferably yeah this one devlin i've got to say from the title and the poster um it looks like a, a kind of sexploitation B-movie. Well, it's B-movie's probably even harsh. It looks like the what Travis Bickle would go and watch in Taxi Driver. Right. There are lots and lots of films. The posters are better than the movie. The poster mm. looks like it's going to be great. And uh, and I wonder if that was... is that Was that Russ's thing? Was just to kind of go, like, get bums on seats, big title, big poster, big boobs? And that's, that's an exploitation picture thing. And this is where I became so obsessed specifically with Russ Meyer. I like there's, there's a lot of films that I've been watching around this era as well. Um, of, of other filmmakers, uh, that I kind of, you know, when you get the kind of daisy chaining of you, you find out this person and then you realize that they worked alongside this person. So you kind of, you try and look through more stuff. But yeah, this idea of, um, again, going back to Ed Wood used to watch, uh, there's a sequence where he goes to see, uh, Mike Starr. As a um, kind of poverty row uh, producer, and he gives him a poster for a film that has not even been written yet. That was how they used to do it. Roger Corman's uh, films back in the American International Pictures has been around for a very long time, longer than 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 Russ Meyer was making films. So Russ Meyer kind of followed that um, process to an extent, but um, his route into filmmaking meant that he didn't quite. 
I don't think he had the same level of cynicism of some of some of these guys. Like Russ Meyer wanted asses on seats. He was uh, uh, a very driven businessman, and he was pretty obsessive about uh, how his films were perceived and essentially in making money. He wanted to be a success, but um, I do feel that he had an extremely high level of quality control in what he did um, for the most part couple of them slipped through the cracks there especially some of the early ones and the uh the there are essentially there are a bunch of films which are essentially just um uh nude scenes strung together uh, mondo topless and, and others the, the film that followed these are the nudie cuties i believe yeah exactly um this film was not successful when it came out um which uh could speak to any number of kind of there are a lot of um factors that could go into a film like this not doing well uh the the quality of it may count against it the lack of nudity when compared to earlier films may count against it although during this period during the um the what they call the gothic melodrama period ross meyer's films weren't really relying on nudity so much they were you know the first two were these kind of uh melodrama like very amped up gothic melodrama pictures very super heated and like Tennessee Williams having five breakdowns at once. And then um, the film preceding this was a gang picture, a, a motorcycle gang picture. Uh, so this was um, what, I, what I really love about, about films that he did in this era versus others is that, yes, what you're talking about is a great title and, a, and an amazing looking poster. Well, that's the essence of exploitation, isn't it? The promising uh, nudity or exactly. violence or whatever it may be usually via a great poster or mm-hmm. a lurid trailer yeah um promising all these things that aren't actually in the film that's what fooled me and got me to tune into channel five anyway it's a it's a it's a it's a con man trick it's literally a con man trick which is that um especially back then you would have this is playing on the exploitation circuit the drive-in circuit this is playing in these little regional theaters you have to make these individual distribution deals for everywhere you want to play a film like this. It's not going out. And, and I mean, there was no uh, Siskel and Ebert on, um, you know, on, on syndicated television telling everyone that this was terrible. Not that these would be the audience that would listen to that either. So if you have a piece of shit, but you can take it around all these little drive-ins where there's not that many options for entertainment, you can get out of town before everyone realizes that they've been duped. Um, oh man imagine that though imagine no twitter that'd be amazing, ogdenville and north north haverbrook you know <laughs> it's fascinating I, I guess devlin i'm gonna you know i'm gonna lean heavily uh on you for your expertise on this one but in and around the time so we've already heard about the plot uh pretty pretty simple uh, i would suggest in it in its its premise is this kind of atypical of the era and of this type of movie or was russ doing something different compared to the sorts of films that i've seen i feel like he really um innovated this i i there were like i guess you'd say like bad girl pictures there were girl gang pictures um there was uh, a a few that kind of turned up in my writing there's this guy robert c dirtano who seemed to specialize in this in the 1950s he made a, something called Racket Girls, Girl Gang, Gun Girls. They all came out kind of one after another. He obviously found a formula that fit. Now, the, the idea of formula filmmaking is is something that Russ Meyer did. You, um, 
as his films stacked on top of each other, you end up as something of a, uh, just a sort of cartoon universe that takes place in its own little sphere where, you know, nothing really penetrates from the outside. And, um, but one thing that, that I think he, he did was that I, I've never seen anything quite like this and I've not seen films of the era that take their, uh, central girl gang so seriously but i want to put seriously in massive massive quote marks there because mm. uh i think everyone is is well aware that this film is definitely like what you'd call a put on it's kind of a gas you know it's a it's a it's a, a comic but a self-contained comic book entertainment let's pull on that thread because mm-hmm. that was probably the first thing that really struck me was how these characters are being portrayed so my my initial suspicions would be that that you, I should have known better. I've known you for a long time. But I was obviously like, Devlin's basically getting me to watch something a little naughty. And that's fine. Oh, that's okay. fine. We yeah. all we all do it. We all do it. I pick some right turds on this show. <laughs> so I was expecting something to be kind of pulpy. But I didn't expect it to be so fresh. It was. It actually took me aback. If you remove some of the costuming for, um, forgive me, the... The lady who looks like she should be in Austin Powers. Um, Billy. Billy, yeah. If you remove the costuming for her, I would suggest, from my perspective, that I would have had no idea that this was 1965. Like, the dialogue and the way that they, the dynamics between the group, I thought felt really, really quite modern. Well, I loved how it wasted no time and went straight in with a very recognisable opening sequence. Those hypnotic skeletons legs an abstract waveform introduction uh it's like a warning and a disclaimer with all this frenetic cutting jump cuts it was noticeably quick in that opening sequence and that made it feel very fresh and very modern i was impressed overall uh the use of black and white even all that poor man's process stuff where the car's been rocked and it should look very cheap and schlocky but the way it's put together, it felt much more professional than I'd anticipated. You don't expect it, Matt, because you're you're watching something with a title that would suggest that it's going to be really crap, and and you're going to see it. You're going to like literally be able to. There's, there is no curtain; you can see straight through it. Um, it's a tall glass of water movie, whereby you're like, yeah, the people that have made this have have done the bare minimum at every turn. Like even the go-go dance and stuff. I found it interesting, the angles with which Russ Meyer put the camera. So I was like, well, if you are going to do a kind of titillating opening sequence of just introducing these three go-go girls, uh, go-go dancers, and we're going to leer and and kind of take them in fully, you don't shoot low angle kind of mm-hmm. close up. Like you have a, like a, you have a camera shot that would, uh, or a sequence, um, where you, you know, you might go up and down like an ogle. He doesn't do it, yeah. which I thought was interesting. Well, we talked about the male gaze, didn't we? Uh, when the camera here is down in the pit with those sleazy guys looking up at the three go-go dancers, usually the camera would be on a par with the subject. But here it's uh, very clearly we're supposed to be in the mindset of these sleazy guys. And it's quite abstract. We don't really see who's who very clearly. We just see these bodies moving and the cutting is so fast. 
yeah the uh um the the establishment of us the audience as being you know the gross leering men and they're all played by maya and his friends and his crew all those voices going go baby that's russ meyer just in his house under a blanket recording himself saying that mm. um and as soon as that sequence is finished it cuts to uh vala just laughing uproariously at, at at these men i would imagine like yeah, yeah. that that she can manipulate them with uh with with just her physicality just with her extraordinarily intimidating sex appeal yeah no i i thought it was really interesting because um I think you have to watch the whole film in its uh, totality to kind of understand. But in, in the initial episodes, I was like, ah, this could be seen as being leering. But then as you're watching the movie, you understand that that's probably not the, the filmmaker's intent. Um, especially when you consider that it's almost like a worship. Um, it reminded me of, I don't know if you ever saw like when, before Louis Theroux did like the serious documentaries, when he did his uh, weird weekends, he did one on um, on mu- women muscle worship. This is in my notes that these men like to be crushed by these giant women. Yeah, it reminded me so much of um, these guys, and and obviously some of them looked like they were walking stereotypes of what you would expect somebody who would who would be into something so niche but then there were others who were like put together like businessmen who were like oh yeah i just you know i like just having an arm wrestle and getting and it it reminded me of like that idea of i think maybe like again i don't know a great deal about the filmmaker but i'm just watching the film and thinking pouring yourself into it like there is a worship here of these Mm. ladies not necessarily a kind of leering seedy kind of objectifying well it's who holds the power and vala has the power for the entire thing and that really helps it does doesn't it and um you know not to get all uh highbrow but i decided to we we discussed the male gaze before so he's as well doing it now before we get into all the characters i wanted to quote exactly the definition as based on the critic laura mulvey who uh who coined the phrase um from her her book, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. Another great title, by the way. Um, so she says that it's divided the gaze into three looks, the cameras, the spectators, and the characters. And the gaze that Hollywood cinema created by manipulating these looks, she argued, was exclusively male. So it turned women into objects with no force or power, as Matt, you just said there, of their own, and then superficial ability to excite male desire. Uh, to be looked at this is what she quoted. And I didn't, so if you put it as that's your definition of the male gaze, and we can look at some modern examples, I don't think Russ Myers do. (coughs) Marvel. (laughs) Well, yeah, you you go Marvel, I'll go DC. And this is not to uh, sort of have a bit of a superhero uh, bashing, but like I remember, and we watched it together, didn't we, um, Devlin? David Ayer's Suicide Squad. And Mm. not only is it like, Obviously, I know that it's a compromised movie, but not only is it rubbish, it's really, really, like structurally one of the worst films I've seen in sort of modern times. But Margot Robbie, you can't get around the idea that there is nothing other than objectifying here. There is no like, oh, but it's Harley Quinn. She's the, you know, she's the zany one. She's the one that pops off the screen. She is, but look at the camera angles and some of the, some of the decisions when he photographs her. There is an, I remember there's an arse shot where it's just her arse. 
and she's just walking. That's for nobody other than Annette Beards yeah. and David Ayer. It's it's unmotivated, and I felt like every single time within this film, it was motivated. It was motivated by even the, there's the uh, the shot of Vala when she's in the car at the gas station. When you've got the gas station attendant looking down at her, so obviously yeah, we, but it's as an the audience... gas, but it's the as you say, it's motivated. Yeah. It's the gas attendant who is being distracted. You yeah. could argue, okay, might be also, yeah. might also be for us, but yeah, oh, at it's, least it's, it's at least there is a justification but, yeah. there. You wouldn't go, well, that was just an inexplicable cutaway done by the second yeah. unit. Probably, well, there is no second unit, I'd imagine, on this, but like that, it wasn't, was it? It's just it, it informs you about the character and informs you about Vala as well that she is yeah. openly aware of it and uses it at every turn, as you say, it's established right at the beginning of the movie. It's not smutty; it's powerful. The women, at least. I suppose it's a bit smutty. I'm thinking of the drunk blonde Billy. Uh, as Dev said in one of his Maya reviews on Letterboxd, their comic book characters come to life. They are superhuman, particularly uh, Satana here. They're in control of their destiny. Uh, they're juggernauts, as Rick Mail, as Richard Richard would say. Uh, Vala... Um, steals the show her authority leadership she's the mastermind she's dominant and assertive and totally in control and she never falters she's very decisive it depends as well when when it's it's not really for us to say although i guess everyone can have their own opinion on this thing it depends as to uh, uh, how the idea of sex appeal sexuality plays into power as well and uh, I'm sure it could very easily be argued that the fact that the power that Russ Mayer gives his women in all of his films is derived from their sexuality um, or, or, you know, manipulating their uh, sex appeal over men in order to dominate them. Um So that could obviously be seen as extremely reductive because, you know, you, you don't, uh, you don't, look into the totality of a person it's not about you know uh, um anything more than than that but also i think that was just like it's it's not that he does that to the women in his films russ meyer does that to the men in his films russ meyer makes his entire universe about sex it's what he was fascinated by so uh on that front i don't i don't even think it gives him a get out because he didn't seem like the kind of guy who wanted a get out but it's it's always clouded by the fact that, uh, as we said, his his interview style was very pugnacious and often very. Um, it's not even self deprecating; it's um, self limiting. He wouldn't really talk about his influences. He wouldn't talk about his intent. He would only ever kind of talk about breasts. That was his uh, his his interview style. But uh, it, it can't. It literally can't just be the case because, as we've said, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk more about whether you like this film or not, but I don't think anyone could deny that this is an extraordinarily uh, competent and coherent film and a complete piece of filmmaking. It's not, it's not some kind of like uh, uh prurient trash. It's mission statement is comes out right at the gate. So there's a, there's a long prose uh, about sex and violence and the relationship mm. between them. And if this film were all about smut, well, one, you wouldn't bother having that. And two, you wouldn't then sprinkle these moments throughout the movie. And and again, may, you could argue I'm overthinking it. 
but I only watched it once. I normally watch these movies twice, but I felt like the film was so well constructed and executed that I kind of got it in one viewing, which was everybody succumbs to these primal, in, uh, like these primal instincts and it will destroy you. It's kind of where mm-hmm. I got it. It's like you can use these tools, but these tools will drive. And in the end, if you succumb, you will be destroyed by them. Sometimes through association, other times directly. And I found it interesting when I looked at, when I was watching the movie, because that was going straight through my head, because he kind of made his mission statement right at the beginning, that that kind of played out in, in all the cases through, through some of the major sort of character dynamics. You know, I'm thinking about um, Billy and, you know, forgive me, but it is his name, The Veg. Um, you know, there is love there, but there was lust. Um, the old man, <laughs> sort of the question I was make, Corman did. The old man, similar thing, gives in to his lust, but also his desire to to procreate and 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 have a less disappointing son. Uh, you know, maintain his lineage, all that kind of stuff. It just felt it fell nicely into place, and I thought, wow, I wasn't expecting this from a title like Faster Pussycat Kill. Well, I found some stuff that might suggest that it's not intended to be entirely sexual. Uh, there's a Roger Ebert quote saying uh, her abundant cleavage, meaning Vala, seems as firmly locked in place as a Ninja Turtle's breastplate. One cannot think of her as fondlable. And he I'm glad did, he's not yeah. fondling anyone. But he says that the dominatrix, which I never realized she was... Mm. Uh, Vala never smiles, but Satana softens at times. Uh, it's in her eyes and the expression in her face changes and she becomes quite feminine. She likes men with big appetites, but she could never find one that matches hers was a key quote. Yeah. Uh, my first big laugh out loud though is when Vala breaks out the corn on the cob, uh, at the table and it's not subtle at all. And after a bit of posturing with some teasing lines here and there, a few double entendres, it all goes out the window so she can devour this phallic cob of corn. I, I think there's definitely, I mean, of course, the, you know, Roger knows, uh, Ross better than most. So, um, uh, but he always, you know, he always did have his own takes on, on Russ Meyer stuff, uh, the stuff that he didn't work on, at least. Uh, Roger Ebert's association with him goes from, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls onwards. So the, the 1970s work is where Russ was secretly, pseudonymously helping to script these increasingly mental films that he was making in the 70s. But, um, I do think that, um, Vala's more of a, a force of nature and I, it's going to be extremely subjective as to what people do or do not find attractive. And also it could be a little skeevy to, to talk about um but i do think that yeah she's um the idea of like everything being locked in as an armor totally makes sense the the outfit that she's wearing the iconic outfit that she's wearing the eye makeup being fixed in it's you know the the amount of eye makeup that she's wearing is going to make it very difficult to change her expression mm. um you know she's uh she's well, it's, it's and devlin if you're if you're feeling uncomfortable putting it in those terms then i'll just flip it and just say the man of steel there's a there's lots of stuff in that superman that Zack snyder mm-hmm. did where henry cavill is walking around topless 
Mon- who's that for? Oh, That's yeah, where, is that, yeah. You know, so it, it's for a, you know, it's well, not I mean, a Why did they put nipples on the bat suit? Yeah, yeah, why why, why, why have it? a cod piece on the bat suit? I think there's an honesty to to what uh, Maya did, which is that the idea that the cinema screen has almost, from its outset, been there to show beautiful people. There's a reason why most of the 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 great roster of all the famous actors in history were extremely attractive people, almost uh, almost to to a person. So. Um, uh, I, I think the idea of a leering is is yeah the the leering. I guess the the plot synopsis didn't really discuss what actually happens in the main bulk of the film, which is a shame. We should probably let everyone know that um, the uh, Vala kills a, a, a guy in the desert after um, after beating him in a in a race that she fixes by running him off the road, and they they kidnap his little girlfriend. I I, uh, I don't know. Should we? Should we start there? Because I guess that's the big inciting incident, and then maybe we'll move on to what happens at the farm. Yeah, house, yeah. I think it probably it deserves a bit more. Um... Well, that fits in nicely with the emasculation of the chap. Yes, he's he's the uh, co- he is the cocksure townie who runs into the wrong the wrong trio after they head out of the of the the club the 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 go go club where they're dancing and they just pull up at some arbitrary point in the in the salt flats in the desert. Uh, oh, it's to to have a game of chicken. <laughs> Because Vala wants to put the two girls in their place. Mm-hmm. She wants to put Rosie and Billy back in their place. Um, and then a, a, a car pulls up and it's, uh, just the squarest fifties guy with his plaid shorts and his black socks. <laughs> so his girlfriend comes, uh, comes bopping out of the car. She has, I, there are a, a tremendous amount of great lines in this film, but I'm not sure there's a, a setup and payoff as good as when uh, Vala is is taunting the guy by saying that uh, you could um, you could time that wreck with a with an hourglass, and sh- this little girl in a bikini pops up and says, "Did someone mention my figure?" Been running some timing trials. We know how fast we can go. Could time that heap with an hourglass. <laughs> someone mentioned my figure. In that outfit, what's to mention? Oh, shall I set up shop here, Tommy? We mentioned the freshness of the opening, but it wasn't until I started to see the framing and what Maya was doing with his blocking and compositions. It was then that I felt very comfortable. I knew I was in the safe hands of a decent filmmaker. Uh, I found one particularly good when the three girls are in the same frame sat in or around the car. It's just very well composed. Uh, there's some great stuff with female dominance in frame, like the way Laurie Williams looms over the vegetable. Maya's words, not mine. She's in control. She's preying upon him. Uh, and the stuff where you can tell someone is shaking the car, the poor man's process. Mm. Uh, Maya's figured out clearly that bumpy old dirt roads and desert tracks are perfect for jiggling boobs around. And also, I imagine he had a lot of fun with that poor man's process rig where yeah. they manually shake the car chassis in a studio or outside or wherever under more controlled lighting conditions. Uh, I imagine he was probably the one shaking the car and having a whale of a time. But he also knows, Matt, that uh, as an audience member to be invested in the race, you need to, one, orientate yourself with who's who, and two... um a reaction shot will then inform you about what is happening and who is thinking about what as the race is going on. So you can, you know, even 
you could just watch that in again it's our old tests you know you could put it on mute and you'll understand exactly what happened at the start of the race and at the end of and who won and and how and then obviously there's a back break which mm-hmm. will or inevitably happen if you're a sore loser uh, like he that's was. That's a that's a tough gig, though, right? Isn't like a, a, I would have thought that plotting out a a driving sequence, a race sequence. His crew was maybe seven or eight people on most of these films, and most of them were just army buddies of his. Like it, there were very few people who were. There were obviously people who knew what they were doing. He was a trained filmmaker. He was an industrial filmmaker, so he knew how to. I think he was one of these guys that we like to talk about that has. Uh, uh, knowledge of every single department he had technical knowledge of every department in many ways james cameron is just the 1980s russ meyer piranha too <laughs> yeah he, and, and he does love women he loves strong yeah. women he loves a oh, strong yeah. woman just james yeah his sex scenes are very different though. <laughs> yeah yeah we'll, but, we'll um, get to that one in a couple of a couple of reviews time thinking about you kate with that hand to have an exciting race sequence to understand what everyone's doing during that sequence and then to have it like pay off. Do you know if he storyboards and how much does he prepare in that sense? What's strange again is his, um, his total lack of talking about the technical qualities of his film was, uh, was, was remarkable. His, the, obviously other people that he worked alongside would, would speak of his, um, uh, his method, but I, I don't believe he did. I don't believe he did storyboard. I, I think he just he shot some he, of his own films, didn't he? He was his own cinematographer. He was more often than not, yeah, he was more often than not the cinematographer. He had a guy um who was uh periodically throughout the book, big bosoms and square jaws. There would be you would hear you would hear these names come up of like this is the guy who did this for him. This guy Richard Brummer he used to be uh, uh he was his sound assistant and then he became his editing assistant and um you would hear them chip in but by and large it was it was russ and uh his cinematography came from that he used to do all these you know cheesecake erotic photography so he was um he was dab hand at using uh reflector boards which is why you know this all looks so it just popped i can't remember if i heard it on your previous episode or not dev but uh satana who played vala talked about how the glare was in her eyes from these bounce boards and reflectors yes. and it was incredibly sunny as well and she would be squinting and blinking and maya would be directing her mm. to keep her eyes open all the time yeah yeah if you take a, a bunch of people out to salt flats which is reflecting the sun back up anyway and and you're trying to have a conversation with somebody. Of course, everyone's eyes are going to crinkle up into a tiny little, uh, tiny little dot. Mm. And yeah, he he didn't want to see that. He said that no, this is not what his character should be doing. So they would all just have to stare. And if he saw a blinky, he would more often than not he would edit. That's how he would find his edit points. He said if the audience is mm. blinking, oh sorry, if the if the cast are blinking, then the audience is going to be bored or they're not going to pay attention. Well, that's a technique for villains, and uh, it's an intense thing to do. I think Oliver Reed talked about it. Uh, he said, "Do it again and don't blink," and it added intensity to whoever it was as performance. You don't know whether you're reading too much into it. You never know if you're reading too much into it with a Russ Meyer, because again, he would never admit. But. Um, in the costuming that you have Vala in that kind of iconic all black with the big deep V neckline and the black gloves. And obviously, I mean, her, her, um, costuming is pretty easy to read as, you know, almost like a sexy Darth Vader. Um, and, uh, um, 
Laurie Williams as as Billy. She's wearing all white, and uh, uh, Haji as Rosie is uh, in half black, half white. You know, you were talking about how uh, how Vala kind of dominates the screen, but I think Russ, uh, in equal measure with all the with all the the main trio, there's a there's a a frame in particular that uh, and a composition that that stuck with me from my watch, which is of uh, Rosie with a leg up, and it's kind of low angle. It's almost, it's pretty much a long shot. It's a whole body. And, yeah. uh, and it, that just struck me as kind of like, yeah, we are, we are in this worship mode. Every opportunity to present these people as, as being more than, um, that Russ is, Russ is gonna, gonna go that route. And I thought that was just, it, again, it just speaks to a film with a filmmaker who has got a vision, got an intent. This isn't just a slapdash. Let's get them out. Let's get them titillated. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm walking my way into Burt Reynolds territory where it's like, but well, what do they do after they've come? Now, Devlin, can you help me with the relationship between Vala and Rosie? What exactly is going on there? Uh, there's some clear, uh, allusions to lesbianism and the fact that perhaps this group of three have even perhaps interacted sexually together. So I read it pretty much as that of the three of them, uh, Rosie and Vala were together. And essentially that, you know, Vala was, was quite clearly the dominant, um, member of their, uh, of what well, member, the dominant partner within that partnership. Um, there's a couple of things that kind of tip it off. Obviously there's, uh, they could just be seen as acolytes or hangers on. But Billy seems to delight in antagonizing Rosie. That's set up quite quickly after they uh, have their uh, their cat fight, and um, and then later on the ranch, the seduction sequence where uh, Vala decides that she's going to try and and bed the 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 son to get the information that she needs. This is yes. the role in uh, hay. Yeah. That's Kirk, isn't That's it? Kirk. The son. Yeah, Kirk is the uh, yeah. the son reading the books and um rosie is is distraught there's also um at the dinner table there's something that billy says which is that she says to rosie that she's a uh she's a one band broad or a one yeah she's a one band broad essentially suggesting that uh not only is rosie and vala together but also that uh while vala seems to be omnisexual um rosie is uh, uh attached only to 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 vala um, and I think it was, uh, it's pretty bold for the mid sixties to have, um, uh, you know, even to have your anti-heroes be, uh, uh, portraying a, a lesbian relationship that was so nuanced. Well, this is the thing, isn't it, Devlin? Because again, anyone looking from the outside in, looking at the poster and then with the promise of lesbian lovers would would probably think oh yeah rubbing both knees but actually the film itself very respectful and it's really only inferred yeah. through looks gestures and obviously you know if you're a little bit clued in uh it's old matt's matt souls saying you know for those that have got you know two digit <laughs> iqs then you should be able to work it out that indeed there is there is a relationship going on i think rosie uh played by haji was 
my favorite of the bunch. I don't know if you have a favorite pussycat, but I thought she had the nicest eyes and had my favorite figure of the three. Yeah. No, Ro- Rosie was my favorite as well, Matt. Um, I, 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 and this is how I know that the movie was working for me. Um, was when, when Rosie, it's a net, it's that whole beautiful thing when a filmmaker can make something seem so inevitable that you know it's going to happen, but you hope that it doesn't. That's what happened when, um, when Rosie met her demise. Cause I was like, Oh no, she's definitely, definitely in trouble yeah. here. And, uh, and, and I, and that one I felt, whereas where with Vala and with, um, with, uh, Billy, I was very impressed with Billy's death acting. I thought yeah. it was great. Um, but I, but I didn't, I didn't necessarily feel, feel the loss. But I did with Rosie, so she was definitely my favourite too. Yeah, I'd like to see some more of Hadji's work. Did she do any other films with Russ Meyer? So she was uh, uh, very prominent in the previous feature, which is Motor Psycho, um, which I would say is worth a watch. Was that the same year? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, they 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 were very 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 quickly put together. Um, Cheering them out, baby. Yeah, uh, so Hadji plays uh, in that one. She plays a a Cajun woman. A uh, Cajun witch is what her. Uh, How was her was. accent in that one? Uh, <laughs> fascinating. She's actually French Canadian. She's Quebecois. So uh, uh, the 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 range of unusual accents that she would come out with. Also, she looks almost completely different in a lot of these films. So she's uh, in these two, she looks very similar. And then she comes up again in Super Vixens. Uh, she plays Super Haji. Uh, everyone in Super Vixens is given the prefix super. Oh, that's the one where yeah. he just puts super in front of their names. They're already established heroes in yes. the Rust She's Meyer the only one who plays played by the same actress, I believe. Uh, the rest of them, are, uh, they take the titles from the previous, or the, the, the character names. But, um, uh, but she was a, a, a real, like, um, she was part of, you know, the, the, the small cadre of insiders. She was, uh, uh, she was also in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. She's just painted. She's wearing nothing but body paint and she walks through a party scene and that's, that's it. But, uh, she's fantastic. Um, she was one of like, Maya had these, um, a lot of the actresses that he had, there was a, a kind of a, a little trusted cadre of them that stuck around for the longest time. They, uh, and if they weren't working on the film, if they weren't in the film, they were working on the film. They were in the crew. He would have them like dragging reflector boards around and stuff and, and, uh, uh, helping him keep the paperwork in order. And in some cases, you know, operating lights or something like the, um, uh, she was great. Both, both, uh, Haji and Tura Satana were both, um, exotic dancers that's where russ found them uh tura satana was a very famous um burlesque performer who apparently was famous for her uh inimitable talents with nipple tassels that was enough to, to she was notorious she was a uh tura satana is a fascinating character in real life she had a documentary made about her and been books written about her and you know, she dated Elvis back in the day and she was, uh, um, a very intimidating presence, uh, um, by all accounts. And her and Haji knew each other from their stripping days, uh, a place called the Losers Club, which is where Russ found a lot of his actresses. And, um, yeah, she's great. Uh, Motorcycle is not one of my favorite Maya films, but, uh, I, I will say that she is without doubt, like the best bit about it. She's, uh, it's, what did you guys make of their performances in general? 
of the of the three lead actresses we'll get on to the the other cast members as we go through the the second part of the plot yeah initially i thought i'm gonna shout all my lines it was kind of cacophonous and i wasn't too sure but as time went on uh you know i said earlier that she softens i think that was helpful um she's androgynous she's kind of masculine and feminine simultaneously but very clearly a woman too and the mad eyebrows was an issue for me um physically i liked rosie best i liked her vulnerability and there are elements of billy that i liked laurie williams is fine but she's uh the sharon tate vibes i thought but um yeah, she wasn't my favorite of the three. She was probably my least favorite of the three, the drunken antics, but uh, necessary as a character, but in terms of in terms of performance I enjoyed it, but uh she she was my my least favorite of the three. Yeah, I I I pretty much agree with that. I think um yeah, the Vala very one note, but um but kind of in keeping with the character and and again the the biggest compliment i can give is that i never questioned their abilities they're not they're not asked to do a great deal but what they are asked to do is is perfectly in keeping with uh, where the story is and and the beats that you need to hit in order to progress the story and i, I would say that of all of the uh, all of the performers i think there's one in particular who stands out as the old man um hence he's given the most lines um but but i thought all of them did uh, did a great job i wouldn't have ever as far as you tell me their backstory i wouldn't have known that they were just not that they were just that sounds harsh but that they weren't professionally mm. trained actors i would have just seen it as budding enthusiasts yeah i i i was a little i think uh um the the previous episode that I did was obviously it was an extremely long time and I was trying to use it as a bit of a primer. So um uh, I think I was probably trying to explain the way that a lot of Maya's actors uh perform might be unusual. It's it's it they're not the kind of performances that you would expect. If you haven't seen films of this type, you might not be used to this type of performance and i i was probably a little i think i was a little harsh on on tura satana because i i said that i was trying to get across that she's probably not traditionally what you would consider to be a good actress but that it really doesn't matter in this role because she is absolutely perfect in exactly what she is expected to do which is to be completely believably intimidating and mean let's just time lancelot as he comes charging to the rescue what's going on here? three and a half seconds champ you were great What's the matter? The watch. She won't give it back to me. Let's have it. You've got a weird sense of humor. Try again. I get funnier. Look, I don't know what the hell your point is, but I don't... The point is of no return, and you've reached it. You can still climb in that kitty car and take a hike, unless you can fight better than you can drive. Yeah, the character of Vala... It's kind of this armor that she's putting on. Uh, I think there's a performance within a performance. She's not really as dominant, uh, but she has to put that face on. That's where the, the kabuki eyebrows come in, I think. I always remember when Steven Spielberg first saw The Shining and he said he didn't like Jack Nicholson's performance. It was too big. It was too heightened and kabuki. So I feel like what she's doing by shouting her lines, etc., uh, and uh, asserting this dominance. 
that's not the real her at all. The soft part that we see just for a glimpse is the real Vala. But she is putting forth this dominant nature because she needs to in order to get what she wants. There's also the Quentin Tarantino factor. Satana was an actress that he wishes he could have worked with and she would fit perfectly into his cinematic universe, I think. I get the sense that Tarantino quite likes the the badge that he's been given, which is if you want to re- kind of reprise your career, I'm your guy. So, you know, Pam Greer, John mm-hmm. Travolta... I mean, you could argue Bruce Willis, but actually, in the end, it was probably his, oh, his high point. Um, but you know what I mean? It, it's just, it's just, just those, those types. Um, and yeah, maybe, or if not reprise, then, um, bring to the masses. Yeah. These people like that you may Forster not have seen. Well, you know, giving, Robert yeah. Forster would be the one, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, he's, uh, uh, especially his later stuff. Tarantino's latest stuff when he kind of unmoored himself from the from the confines of reality further and further which is a, a great parallel with Russ Meyer to be honest which is that his early films are a lot grittier and then as he goes through his career he just becomes vacuum sealed self-contained they become you know and Tarantino's done a similar thing which is that he's created a little Tarantino universe in which all of these things can happen but they happen in a very specific way um uh, yeah, like uh, Teresa Tanner didn't really work in film after this. She did a few uh, 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 similar level exploitation films throughout, I guess, parts of the rest of the 60s and the 70s. But um, she was a. This film was re released in 1995, and I think that's where the cult appeal actually comes from because it wasn't a success when it first came out. And I think it was rediscovered. It was a perfect, perfect time for rediscovery, I think. The nostalgia cycle had come around to this point. And 90s, mid-90s, you've got a kind of jaded Gen X thing. The 90s guys were like a Tarantino. They were um, crate digging. They were all looking for the next cool thing that hadn't been rediscovered. I think you mentioned, Devlin, there's a Spice Girls video for Say You'll Be There mm. that takes place on I a salt so. yeah, flat. The one in the, in the... And all <laughs> the girls are done up in their outfits. Yeah, and there's the... a lot of leather and... Uh, Jelly Haribo's boobs are jiggling around, and you think it it probably owes something to Fast yes. Pussycat. Yeah, um, that looks like one of the contemporary kind of uh, things that took influence yeah. from this film. Well, I, I I think it's interesting what you say, Devlin, about Tarantino and 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 others of his ilk and generation taking influence from a Russ Meyer or this type of exploitation movie because. The interesting thing that's now happening, and it's you know it's kind of showing our age a little bit, is that the recent big releases, uh, especially the you know the irony being the superhero films of which the particular filmmaker was slagging them off, um, they seem to be taking their influence from like early Scorsese, uh, and then I, I I've read reviews, I've not seen the new The Batman, but apparently that is very David Fincher, so. In a, in a world now where we've kind of seen all those because we've lived through it, the idea of filmmakers of the next generation or the generation after us taking their influence from 70s exploitation movies that we've just seen because we've just seen them. Like we've seen Taxi, seen Taxi Driver. I've seen all of Scorsese's early work because uh, it was Scorsese. It was something that we had to do. So I wonder if there is a kind of, there's a loss art to discovery in that 
everything has been seen, everything has been pulled, you know, run through the mill and discussed and critically appraised, re, re, you know, reappraised and retrospectively uh, championed or pillied. I mean, you didn't mention Joker there specifically, but yeah. that's the one, isn't it? It steals directly from Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy. And it's just a, a mashup of those two. But if you'd never seen those films, Matt, um, because you're, you know, you're slightly younger than we are, you'd be like, this is, yeah. well, this is fucking revolutionary. And you're like, well, not if you've seen King of Comedy. Uh, but, but that's the thing, isn't it? So I, I wonder if we're in that space because it's interesting. And it's, I only say that because I just this morning, because I'm probably going to go and see the Batman next week, read a review from somebody that I do, um, put a lot of stock in and, and faith. And they, they, they mentioned Seven and Zodiac. And I was like, Christ, right. are we, are we there now? Are we where we're, we're pulling our influences from David Fincher? And Jesus. Like he's, he doesn't feel like he's been, he hasn't stopped 25 working. 25 so years, know, though, can, right? Since Seven. But it's been 25 years. Yeah. So maybe that, maybe that's the space we're yeah. in. Yeah. It's, it's 20, you know, they talk about 20 year nostalgia cycles, 30 year nostalgia cycles. This film coming back in 95 was a 30 year nostalgia cycle, but it was kind of perfect for the time that it was. That it was coming and i think it got because it was so kind of snappy and revolutionary i think it, it's you can allow this being kind of pulled forwards more into the 70s exploitation space just purely because of it doesn't have the drag that some of the 60s stuff has it doesn't have the the rust on it that some of those films do two years before thoroughly modern millie as well right. that's not to have one last swipe at that one but this feels so this feels like it could easily have come out 15 years ago and you wouldn't have questioned anything like I say or or when when Tarantino and Rodriguez were doing their bring back the exploitation cinema you could have slipped this straight in kept the same story probably the same or you same could have look, just remade it style. with Rose McGowan yeah put Rose McGowan in it and you would have you would have a you got a movie I'm not the biggest fan of it although I do really understand why other people are I'm not the biggest fan of um Death Proof I I wish I loved it there's so much about it that should be exactly up my street but there's something in there that just doesn't quite catch with me but it's essentially a faster pussycat kill kill remix Well Death Proof has to be his worst film even he said that I quite like it as an exploration of the slasher subgenre. I put it last on the final day of my horror October of all slashes. Uh, there's some similarities there. Um, preyed upon by a man. Uh, there's a timid girl left with a creep who will try to have his way with her. In Death Proof, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is left with the big lug farm boy. Um, and there's uh, an unspoken thing where it's suggested that, that she'll be intimate with him. Uh, there's tons of dusty car chases. It's also, for me, the main thing was uh, a director who's unafraid to reveal his fetishes. Quentin is clearly foot obsessed. And uh, this certainly connects him and Maya. Uh, Maya with the boobs, obviously. Um, and there's a few directors, uh, Woody Allen's Manhattan, which depicts, uh, at the very least, unethical relationship with a, a younger woman. Uh, there's Louis C.K., who I still think is amazing, uh, but his work is littered with uh, masturbation references. Uh, and, you know, there's something about 
uh, directors and artists hiding their fetishes and uh, sexuality or deviancy within their work in plain sight. Uh, it's part of sharing who they are. Well, I think, I think Matt, that speaks to my initial as a, as a new newcomer to Russ Meyer, my initial skepticism around the whole movie and Devlin's pick was, would have probably been the same type of response that say a kind of more conservative American film criticism bunch would likely label this as, which is what's well, a piece of trash made by a misogynistic uh, dude who's looking for any excuse to hang around with big titted women. I mean, I think it's, it's simplistic, but I think that's probably at a glance. You could see why as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. It's the thing is it's not wholly inaccurate and that's the great thing about it. It's like, I think, I think you're right, Matt, in that he has, he has his thing and he was unashamed of his thing. Uh, possibly the reason he was so kind of pugnacious in his interviewing style was that he felt that he needed to get out in front of it to just be like, yeah, no, I am a shameless, disgusting pervert. Like, he, um, but what that, what that also does is it, 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 it makes it, I think that's what makes it so fascinating to dig into everything that he's made and to watch it. Because one thing that me and, and you galley have definitely talked about before is, um, uh, and I think we've mentioned it a couple of times that when we've been doing the Rerotica series, it's like, it seems that just the, the joy of the, the joy of prurience in cinema just gets kind of removed from it. And you see what happens to uh, Tarantino being, like you say, the last filmmaker who seems to be unafraid to put his peccadilloes up on screen. People will just say, oh yeah, Tarantino's just a filthy foot fetishist, pervert, sicko. And it's like as if it's a slander and it's... And so he and does it more in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. He did it a few um, times. But to which it's like, why Why is that a terrible thing? Why is it a terrible thing to see somebody's fascinating, weird, psychological, uh, uh, the, the, the terrain of their mind being put up on screen? Why are we afraid to see um, the, the recesses of, of real people? That's the point of artistry, isn't it? Even if it's going to be... I, I never thought we would, we would go from... <laughs> Faster pussycat kill kill to what is happening with our society whereby we can't have an open discussion well, about sex. It's, but that's kind of where we're at. Yeah, I mean, like we, yeah. the, the re-rotica series was an opportunity for us to kind of look back at this heyday of, of kind of those nineties erotic thrillers. And then it's, it's, it's grown arms and legs. And now it's going to be basically a, a sash pool of seed. <laughs> but the thing is, the reason why we are championing that kind of that that side of of cinema is because we are being completely and utterly neutered yeah. from within. Because we've mentioned it many many times before, it's not just the big blockbuster movies. It's like every movie that you know wants to get into kind of connection and relationships just seems to only want to show that side of like almost not a rom-com but that kind of sweet side of it and it's like what about the lust mm -hmm. and there enter russ yeah and and that's and that's the thing it's like that there's there is there is a, if you deny it we are worse off for him mm. that's for sure and it, it leads into the second the second major section of the film which is actually i guess the bulk of the film uh here happens once uh they have decided to kill the black socks squared guy in the they haven't decided to i guess vala just instinctively murders him uh, and they they kidnap the girl, uh, and they take her to uh, to to the ranch of Stuart Lancaster's old man, 
uh, because they hear from a, the idiot gas attendant that he's that he's loaded, that he got a bunch of money from getting mangled in a train accident. What a hunk of stuff. Hey, he's a big one, ain't he? Mm. Got muscles all the way to his ears. They call him the vegetable. He's kind of a nut. And his old man's a bigger one. Hey, there's the old man now. That's him. The old man, he's a crip. Railroad accident. Smashed him up real bad. Tried to save a girl. Kind of cleared his mind, too. Especially about women. Of course, they gave him a big hunk of money for a settlement. Don't know nobody know how much it was. Never had deposited. Like I say, he's a nut. Don't believe in banks. My guess is he hid out there in the desert someplace. Hates everybody, though. Hates everybody. Of course, with all that money, he can afford to. Don't nobody like him either. Why, he could leave town tomorrow and nobody even stir. Hm. It's kind of sad, though. All that money and nobody enjoy it. They hear. I like that. That's a, a very good... good. Oh, the, 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 you chose your words carefully yeah. there. He was willing to tell everybody. Oh, yeah. I would imagine if I'd filled up my car there, he would have told me about the old man. Mm-hmm. But um, you wrote down in your notes, and I'm going to kind of uh, jump ahead of you. Um, is this just an excuse for a you know a narrative thread? I yes, it is. I quite liked it because it because the whole film feels like it's um, you're completely unsure about where the hell mm. where the hell is this going yeah. we've no motives we know very little about these characters outside of what we see um as they interact and then obviously there's a bat breaking incident that goes on so we're like okay they are willing to kill but what is their end goal they don't have one yeah. so in a way they are literally just gallivanting around um the area kind of looking for thrills and i thought that was interesting when you compare it to the idiot gas attendant's description of the old man and the family. And when we see it, I wrote down two worlds colliding, traditional conservative, Mm. like family structure. And then this new, like crazy nuclear family of these three women who are on like, I don't know, I guess they're on like a mission to just cause anarchy. And I quite, I thought it was quite fun. It is the cash too, isn't it? It's the long green, as she says, she does want the money. Uh, but I guess that the money would be because they've got themselves in a fix and they feel like she's, she's the original Swayze. Yeah. They're, they're, they're surfing on the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the Patrick, uh, Patrick Crane from, from the, the episode that I did with him talked about, um, the Gothic period of, uh, Russ Meyer being like, he, he understood Gothic literature and Southern Gothic, uh, um, this idea of people withdrawing from society and then becoming twisted kind of versions of themselves. And more often than not, it was uh, an exploration of the kind of the, the venom that can emerge from the family unit. And so that's uh, uh, the old man. And at the time I, I mentioned that I thought this felt like a Texas chainsaw massacre kind of thing. And he said that that's, that's, that's quite common. Uh, uh, It's the same with like something like the Hills have eyes or, or any number of films that were just, the real monsters are you. Yeah. And, and the, you know, this is like, yeah, small town America, but it's, it, it's a, it's a twisted, dark, dark mirror of itself. And it's, um, he's one of the most interesting characters. I think we actually find out why he's haunted by trains, which was a relief. Actually, they didn't have to go into that. They could have kept it uh, vague, but it was a nice little layer in there explaining his motive for being such a bitter old fucker. I think it only took just a brief two lines in overlapping yes. scenes to explain the, what happened. She was like, she was running to get a train or something and that she was going to fall onto the track so that he rescued her. 
and he fell and he became horribly mangled and she what happened to her she just got on the next train and then it gets a bit edgy doesn't it because the next one is not going to get away and what do you think his intentions are exactly not to not to then talk about like let's have lots of sex in cinema but then um i felt like the one bit where i did are we talking rape and murder? yeah that was the bit where i didn't need it because i kind of like they i thought russ had done a good job of inferring it through the piece of clothing in his hand mm. after she's ran away it's like we don't really need to see that this is his intention because it's there it's spelt out for you but then i guess the second time she thinks that the vegetable forgive me again vegetable for calling you that it is your name um she thinks that that's what's going to happen to her mm. when she escapes near the end. And and he's trying to help out his dad. He's looking for fatherly love. He rejects his son because his son and another uh, issue of contention is his son is um, Reading books. mentally incapable. <laughs> oh, yeah. I thought you and meant Kirk, eaten... sorry. No, 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 that's Kirk. Yeah, Kirk, he's, he's a real bookworm, mm. real, real smart kid. Yeah, this was one of the few times where I did feel quite uncomfortable because... This is the metaphor of a broken-hearted man who's been left by a woman, left battered and vengeful and violent with a hatred for every woman that follows, and how that mindset can destroy a family via offspring, siblings. Um, you know, that's where Maya and his characters, there's a risk of them uh, crossing over Although not necessarily. I mean, just because he writes a villain doesn't mean he is a villain. I just mean in the sense that we're not talking silly plot points at this point. It's rape, murder, and burying this poor girl in a hole in the desert. It, there's no getting away from exploitation cinema, and especially once you get into the later 60s and 70s, uh, the very... What, it's more than unfortunate it's kind of a disgusting trope that the amount that they use rape as a plot point and that's the reason why i was really not such a big fan of motorcycle despite the fact there's a lot about it that i did like was that the the middle of that film has a really horrible scene and it becomes a point for me whereby it i find it very difficult to ever claw back any enjoyment from a film that goes down that route and i thought that faster pussycat has a tendency to stay on the right line of just it's it's all through kind of implication and creepy atmosphere. And you know, the, the, the dinner seat, the, the table that Stuart Lancaster and the vegetables sit at when he starts talking about that he was too rough the last time. And it's all just best scene in the film for right, me, by the way, that, the dinner table. That kind of weird, yep. eerie theremin music and stuff. It's fantastic. For example, where he lunges for her uh, off camera and he has a handful of cotton. Where is that? cotton from that's left up to us is it her underwear is it part of her clothing uh, we have to kind of envision that exactly matt that's exactly it's exactly my point as well i was really i was happy to have left it there once it becomes really explicit what the intentions are i was it, it just gives you that kind of jolt because the fun the film is uh for the large majority is is really quite a fun ride um, and I was with it and it like the pulpy nature of it all, the dialogue, these interactions. Um, there was one moment where I kind of felt like, oh, I was kind of jolted into, oh, I better put my serious hat on. And I wasn't sure if he was going to go fully into it because I would have felt like, okay, we can't have all this fun and then do this. Or if we are going to do this, 
Um, Devlin mentioned a point offline because I'd we'd kind of spoken about it. We did on one of our um, one of our watches uh, during the lockdown. We did Showgirls, and um, I'd completely forgotten about the end of Showgirls. And it is, you know, it's a super fun ride. Showgirls. It's obviously trashy and now become a real cult classic. I think everyone forgets the last ten minutes of Showgirls, mm. which is just. Is there a rape at the yeah. end of Showgirls? There, there is, yeah, very... and it's really, 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 um, it's really difficult to, you know, there, every single rape scene is difficult to watch, but, but it kind of, I, I understand Verhoeven's intent, but it, it really, like all the fun with, uh, with the performance and the ketchup sauce, that all goes out the window and you're just left with this kind of icky taste. And I thought that, I was going to have a similar experience with this. Luckily, they kind of pull back. You know, we don't have a one. We don't have a rape scene, but the intent is there, and that was enough to make me go. Mm, could have done without. It yeah, I so think he's a particularly well-written character. Um, there's one shot where he's crawling desperately, and the sand is slipping through his fingers as another girl escapes. It's all there. It's all considered. Uh, story-wise and shot-wise, I feel like I'm being a bit condescending because I didn't expect any of this depth whatsoever. Uh, and the film does have character and backstory and motivation, and that was a real relief. Um, I'd agree with your Meyer expert, Patrick Crane, who recommended this as an entry film. I haven't seen them all. I've only seen uh, bits and pieces but uh, it's enough for me to want to see more. Uh, there was another revelation there that the strong son killed his own mother, but he doesn't know it. Uh, and he hates him for it, but he's his blood, his son. Yeah. In childbirth, I, I, I got the impression it was in childbirth. Yeah, and that's where the resentment comes from. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so he, he resents the uh, the... That you know the muscle-bound younger son for being uh, f- for not being smart, for not being capable, for for killing his his wife, killing his wife in childhood. But he also lives vicariously through him sexually. Exactly, yeah, he needs him. Whereas uh, Kirk, the kind of air quotes normal son who spends fifty bucks on books and not a picture among them. <laughs> uh, there's this great line. Great line. So true. It's a magnificent like running gag in in most of russ meyer's stuff about um anytime a man reads too many books he becomes completely incapable of servicing a woman it's uh it goes all the way back to lorna that the reason why lorna's uh uh uh, strays from her husband is that he stays up too late at night he's studying to become like a notary or something well russ did okay i suppose but he doesn't but he doesn't believe in the book well that's the thing he's he's a he's a really well-spoken guy and as we said the script is extremely literate we should probably say that this script was not written by russ the story was concocted by russ and the script was written by a guy called jack moran who uh, was a child actor from the 1930s onwards under the name Jackie Moran. He appeared in films as uh, uh, such um, classics as Gone with the Wind as a child actor, but he'd really fallen on hard times. He hadn't worked since like the mid-40s or the late 40s by this point, and apparently he was, uh, oh, wow. Russ found him in some bar, um, and uh, he was uh, deep into alcoholism at this point, and he essentially he, uh, he hired him for... Uh, what I believe was a writer's guild minimum upfront in cash 
uh, several bottles of booze and a flop house cheap motel. And he locked himself up there. And instead of writing the script, he just got completely tanked. So Russ went and got him, brought him to his house and locked him in a bedroom <laughs> until he finished the script. <laughs> He's, yeah. Um, and, and to think that this guy came up with, uh, uh, this level. Oh, there's some, there's some great one-liners in this. There's some great, and there's some great exchanges, just, just not just like one-liners, but there's some great exchange of dialogue. I mean, personal, personal favorite, um, in that dinner sequence is, uh, the old man in his leery way when he's, uh, talking to Vala, uh, and he says, um, honey, you, uh, what you eat seems to settle in the right places, which is just one of my well, favorite you gotta be, lines. You got a big appetite for everything. Yeah. But, yeah, it's just, yeah, that's, uh, that's nuance right there. Mm-hmm. There's some, uh, great stuff. Uh, Billy, I love Billy's, your, your opening line that you had of, of Billy's when she's at the dinner table and she says that she's 18 and she's legal for, what is it? Voting, loving and drinking. <laughs> And then, uh, and then she proceeds to, to get drunk and start trying to basically blow up the plot from the inside out just for something to do. You put one in one of your notes about, um, what is it about these types of stories, uh, with anti-heroes in particular that, that means that we, 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 we like to spend time with them or we, we accept spending time with them. And interestingly, last night, and it was just, pure by accident it was on sky cinema and i'd not seen it and i've been meaning to see it i watched um hell or high water okay yeah the chris pine and ben foster and jeff bridges and the film goes to great lengths showing these anti-heroes their motivations for the acts that they commit and and how we would then empathize with their situation and this movie is just not interested in that whatsoever. And I found that fascinating because, as you say, in the end, we're all, they're all villains. Um, you know, everybody, everybody has got kind of, uh, blood in their hands or dirt on their hands or something secret that they need to reveal. And the only people that are clean cut are the two that, that, that survive at the end, but they're, I don't know, they're the least interesting people on screen. I don't know what that's trying to say. Also, um, uh, Kirk. Uh, it seems so he's either completely oblivious or he's an enabler. Or he's, yeah. yeah. Um, and I also love that Susan Bernard's character is the most irritating. She's the complete innocent. Yeah. She's the victim of everything, but she's very annoying. So it's, uh, it's, it's like the, there's, yeah, just a kind of a, a gleeful sort of sourness to everything. And that comes across in, in all four of the, um, the first of the gothics and, and mud honey, especially is another one, which has, uh, just takes such joy in like villainy. Devlin, here's a question for you. The, the last line, mm-hmm. I normally put a lot of stock in the mission statement of a movie. And then normally the last line is always, uh, you know, I'm thinking about Jurassic Park when he's looking out the window and the birds are flying and you go, yeah, full circle mm-hmm. birds. So with this, uh, that was a joke. <laughs> Um, with, with, with this, she's, she's obviously lamenting the fact that she's killed Vala. Um, she's like, I think she says something along the lines of, I killed her. Yeah. I took her life yeah, yeah, or yeah. something like that. And he says, don't feel bad for her. She's not human. Now, obviously we've been talking about how Russ has been photographing these ladies and how she dominates the screen. She's almost like a comic book superhero in her dress, in her, 
in in the way that she acts and the way that she shouts every line. Uh, are we meant to think of them as being more than human, or was that really speaking to an ugly soul? I think, um, Gally, it was something we talked about on the on the phone the other day, very briefly. We had a little chat about this, and uh, um, there was something you said about how uh the empathy that you can still have for the villainous characters was because um there's like a there are societal strictures so they have to operate outside of essentially uh society if they're going to be as strong as they are valor especially you know is going to come up against resistance and because kirk is such a uh kind of a blank he's not really a maya hero i don't believe that maya or the film has sees him as a hero i think if anything it's it's kind of it's a tragic conclusion that's that this kind of uh mag- he's proxy hero he doesn't do anything yeah, totally. dreadfully heroic he stumbles on her when she escaped yep. the first time so that's and then returns it to the house that she was escaping from an accident and returns it to the house and then at the end he doesn't deliver the killer blow he's been taken yeah. out it's it's the other it's the other female who's been the weak damsel in distress the whole movie um, and then he gets to he gets to have that like judgment of don't worry about it. Well, yeah, don't worry about it, Kirk. You did nothing. Yeah, but because he's such a kind of square, you know, he's a you know he's a book reading square. Like um, his opinion of of her and his assessment of her should maybe just be read as like um, uh, almost like a, a condemnation of him. And and of what he represents, which is normality, and and that Vala, despite the fact that she was clearly villainous, was you know she was um, extraordinary, and I think Rust had a lot of time for the extraordinary, and I don't feel like there was a ma- that, there's a lot of moral condemnation in some of the films, in in the kind of gothic literature, and uh, um, Rust's films tended to have a moral, literally a moral read out by a narrator or how about this idea of the women being dispatched in a sexual manner just discarded uh there's rosie's very suggestive uh fellatio blood from the mouth Mm. death at the hands of the strong oaf son uh there's a very concise framing there um and then there's vala's death there's the dribbling of blood on her boobs that's kind of a post-coital looking thing uh even the stuff yeah. uh crushing the oaf with the car there was something sexual about it the expressions the writhing uh and as ebert observed uh satana digging her car's rear wheels into the sand yes to him was the female equivalent of impotence mm. then of course you've got uh the girl fight on the beach which is sexual there's two bodies entwined uh there's a lesbian subtext it's in haji's looks uh it's like the cliche when men stand around in a circle and shout cat fight this idea that men like to watch women tussle but their their anti-hero status we you know let's not forget where they came from so they were objectified go-go dancers lowest on the totem pole as far as society i would have thought um women um women who were seen as some you know would have likely be treated uh as being simplistic and without any kind of real 
value outside of their own bodies, hence the way that it's being shot. Again, like maybe I'm giving Russ Meyer too much credit, but I'm just thinking about all the puzzle pieces within mm. the movie. It just adds up to that for me. And I just found it interesting that that we would end on a line that felt like a bit of a a bit of a lie. But then maybe that's Russ Meyer saying that that is the lie that we all kind of buy into, mm. which is, you know, that family. It would the when the idiot gas attendant's telling him about the family. Yeah, he doesn't know about all the other stuff that's going on. Uh, you think it's just a loving son who's helping um, a father who's unable to walk, and how you know how very simple and quaint and and does that seem? Yeah. It's only when you get to the house that you realize that it's full of dark secrets. And, and actually Vala's initial intent was to just sneak in and take the money. Yeah. Um, obviously the escalation is that eventually everyone's dead. Yeah, exactly. It has to be doomed. It has to be a, a, a doomed strategy that will end in, in failure and, and, and death. I think it's interesting what you're saying about, you know, the way that society would have seen the, um, the, the characters and also by extension the actresses who were playing them and and i also think that it was very very apparent that russ meyer did not share that opinion he had uh an extraordinary amount of of uh affection for and admiration for um women who who did this this specific kind of work his first great love was uh was a burlesque dancer like he was obsessive about this stuff. He thought it was an art form and he thought that these women were extraordinary for what they did. He definitely would have been on Weird Weekends yeah. on Louis Theroux. If he was still alive, he would have been yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. 100%. Um, so again, you know, there, there's no point making um, uh, assessments and judgment calls as to whether this is a misogynist viewpoint to take or whether it's empowering because it's both and it's all of these things and it's all very contradictory. And- Isn't the most interesting thing about Maya that there seems to be a constant struggle even for the rabid fans uh we don't really know if he's working on this singular level is it just tits and ass there seems to be enough of his films containing depth to suggest otherwise but for every cinematic effort Hmm. there was a nudie cutie back in the day uh for every conceptual effort there's also a gratuitous cleavage shot for the sake of appeasing his own appetite and perhaps that's what makes him so interesting as we just don't know i understand why you pitched your episode on the socials dev as a pioneer pervert misogynist feminist exploiter entertainer because he could be all of these things he could be none of them he could be three of them he's a walking contradiction and particularly at this time with the me too climate he's a really interesting filmmaker to look back on and explore you seem too pleased about going home if that's where she's going oh she's the quiet type you know how they are you're kind of that type yourself quiet types interest me are you really that quiet only when i'm reading i like men with big appetites only I could never find one to match mine. Honey, you, uh, what you eat seems to settle in the right places. But then, uh, you look to me like a gal with a big appetite for everything. I try to think big. Mr. Host, I'm of legal age for whiskey, voting, and loving. 
Now the next election's two years away, and my love life ain't getting much better. So how about some of that good 100%? I'm glad for the company. Good whiskey's meant to be shared. What do we drink to? Oh, let's drink to trains. They're big, fast, and strong. And they make a lot of noise. I would love uh, to swing by Craig's Corner. Let's let's open the door and see who's inside. I've got a little bit here from friend of the show, or enemy of the show, Roger Ebert. Uh, but here, he was very uh, concise, and his review was particularly interesting, although it was from the 90s, so it was... It was more of a reappraisal than a review. Um, he noted that this was the film that found the widest audience. Uh, there's a punk rock name, uh, punk rock band named after it. Uh, and what attracts audiences to this one is not sex and it's not violence either, but a pop art fantasy image of powerful women filmed with high energy and exaggerated in a way that seems bizarre and unnatural until you re- until you realize that Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah. Sylvester Stallone, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and Steven Seagal play more or less the same characters, but without the bras. Yes. There's also the feminist and lesbian film critic B. Ruby Rich, who wrote at length on uh, the film. Uh, 20 years ago, she dismissed it as a skin flick, uh, but then saw it again and now views it as a female fantasy with images of empowerment that are fascinating to her. Um, so yeah. And also finally, John Waters, director of Hairspray called, uh, Faster Pussycat, beyond a doubt, the best movie ever made. It is possibly better than any film that will be made in the future. Although I'm not quite in that camp, uh, I am a fan. Yes, John Warren says it's uh, the best film that may ever be made. Oh, wow. Excellent. Well, I guess then, guys, that leads me to ask the simple questions. I'll start with you, Matt, because I've got a feeling I know what the other, the other chap's going to say. Um, would you recommend Faster Pussycat? Kill, kill! We didn't really talk about favourite scenes. Uh, I've got a favourite shot. It's the one with the wheelchair right in the dead centre. Uh, with the sun behind and then left and right of the frame, there's the two girls in their black jeans. And I thought that was pervily, but very competently composed. And it kind of summed up my, uh, uh, at least in, in, in my, uh, uh, limited understanding of him. Uh, I thought the sexual deaths were very good. The way that was very thoughtfully and suggestively composed all the poor man's process stuff and all the bathing um in terms of final thoughts it appeared to all be fast cheap thrills at first but these characters are superhuman they really leap off the screen uh real cinema stars uh it's a feast for the eyes uh the titles fly out of the screen as do the boobs if ever a film should have been in 3D or 3 D, it's this one. There's an irreverent breakneck madness to it. It's totally iconic. It's been ripped off to high heaven. Uh, it's 80-something minutes. Uh, there's plenty to ogle. Uh, I think it could be about the dark schemes of men and the dark schemes of women and what happens when they collide. 
what happens when two agendas of the genders clash. But then again, it could be just a study of the female form as much as anything else. Uh, I do think there's enough story and thematic depth to justify the cheap titillation. And it's not as nasty as I'd originally thought it would be. I thought it would be cheap and schlocky, but it turned out to be much more professional than I'd imagined. It's a pretty well thought out and well put together film. Um, it's also an author really carving out his images, really spending the time to put what he wants on the screen. And I always appreciate that. Uh, but it also has ideas underpinning it. Uh, his ideas of violence and the exploration of that and associating it with sex is interesting. Yes, he's a boob-obsessed director, but he's also a genuine author for me. Um, you can tell he's directing the actors how to sit, how to smoke, how to move, how to walk, how to deliver his lines. It's author control. And being a cinema purist, you know, and in spite of filmmaking clearly being a collaborative art, I do still subscribe to this idea that film is a director's medium. Um, in his TCM intro, Rob Zombie called it juvenile, oversexed and awesome. And I'd have to agree, but it, it was a lot less sleazy than I'd anticipated and much more well-made. Uh, it's not that my expectations were low. It's just that there's a certain seedy cheapness attached to the Russ Meyer name and brand. And I was really pleased that there was more to the film than that. Uh, Devlin, our tastes more often than not converge, but occasionally diverge. So I'm always happy when we match up. And uh, this one's a, a big recommend from me. I'll pass over to you, Gally. What did you think? As always, Matt, you've summed up my thoughts far more eloquently than than I could ever ever manage. Um, yeah, I totally agree. I think I came in with low expectations, which for for any movie is really a good thing. It's great to go in with low expectations because they can only soar above. And it definitely did. And it wasn't, you know, this is not to sound in any way kind of patronizing or placating you, Devlin, but I really was concerned. And within about 10 minutes, I was like, no, this is a real film. And we have seen fake films. I'm looking at you, Law Merman 2. Um, that is not, that is a delightful slab of crap but it's not a real film um well it is but it's um, i mean christ you wouldn't think it i mean matt Fuhrer is literally in a gyro in a wheelchair at one point but but this is yeah this is this is really expertly done i thought um and i agree with you matt i expected it to be far sleazier far schlockier and the bit that really took me back was just the dialogue it just felt like the dialogue was so fresh and i thought the way it looks is great the editing and we haven't mentioned it because ordinarily it, these extraneous things we don't really normally mention in movies um, because even though it's a big part of it, but the music really does sell this whole idea of kind of cult exploitation. It almost sounds like a parody of an exploitation score, but it's not. It's just done beautifully. It is what you would what you would strive to to try and achieve. So, yep, it's a... Now, normally my recommendations are caveated. I don't... The only thing I would say is I don't know 
exactly who I'd recommend this to, apart from those that are seeking that journey of discovery um, because it's lost now. You know, streaming wars has meant that everything's available whenever you want it. Um, you don't have to try hard to get anything or or make any kind of effort or do any kind of background reading. It's just like it's all there for you. Um, whereas this felt like a genuine journey of discovery. And that was quite refreshing because it's been a long, long time since I kind of watched something with zero expectation, zero knowledge. And I was thoroughly, thoroughly entertained throughout. Um, a little bit of icky part near the end, but the film doesn't actually go there. And, and I also just thought it was layered. Maybe I read too much into those layers, but it felt like it had a film. It was a film that had something to say. I have now been ordained. I'm, if you, if no one can see me, I'm just doing the sign of the cross. I'm now a Russ Meyer convert and I'll seek out, um, you know, again, I'll need your guidance, but I'm definitely going to seek out more of his work. So, um, if that's not a, a compliment, then, then what is, uh, what about you? Final thoughts on Russ and, uh, you're probably more better place to recommend it to our listeners or, or a specific demographic within our listener base. In terms of recommendation, it's, it's difficult to say. I would say that honestly, kind of anyone who enjoys, um, any form of cult cinema should, should get into this one. There's a type of, uh, uh, you know, retro cool kind of self-conscious irony drenched cinema that we all grew up on. You know, that's our nineties era. And what this is, is the authentic weirdness that those guys were aping you know this was the trailblazer there's there's nothing kind of put on or, or, or fake about it it's um you know when you said that the music almost sounds like a parody the reason it sounds like a parody is because everyone took this as their template and and parodied it so um uh uh so yeah it's um it's a recommendation for anyone who wants to to dig into something kind of unique and and that that has been much aped but never really bettered of its type um and uh, yeah i just hope it's a bit of a gateway for people and i'm glad to hear that you guys want to see some more of his stuff and um to that end i i guess um we'll probably talk about where to watch this now yeah because i i think from my understanding it's it's gonna be you're gonna have to put some work in right so devlin where where can our listeners who are seeking to get on the ride, join the trio as they gallivant through the California desert. Where can they find Faster Pussycat? Kill, kill. Um, there are probably ways to find this online that are not legal. Um, I'm sure. I'm not very good at that. So I'll leave that to people who are more expert at that. Basically, Russ Meyer had a complete control over his films up to the point that they were released by a company called the RM Films Company. When Russ Meyer died, the RM's film company passed to his uh, secretary at the time of his death and some Brazilian handyman who just happened to be in his house. And they now uh, own the rights and, and, and run the distribution to these films. And uh, what that means is that... Um, the reason why it's so rare to find screenings is that their price that they charge for screenings is extraordinarily high. Uh, so the films were licensed at one point in 2005 to Arrow Video for an uh, extraordinary and wonderful big DVD box set, which I have. Uh, there are individual DVDs for sale as well of the films, including Fast the Pussycat Kill Kill. It was released on a regular standard format DVD at the the um, the image quality is is fine. It's a shame that it's not better. Uh, but uh, outside of that, you can find those on eBay, probably. Did you say that there was a 
Blu-ray or are they just DVDs? There is a Blu-ray. So the Blu-ray was issued by RM Films. Now there is still a web store which is up, which is still being run by the RM Films company. However, that Blu-ray costs $299 because these people are insane. So uh, there is a... um, eBay would have some. There is a site I'm going to link to on the blog again, uh, which I did on the previous blog as well, which is called Sloppy Seconds Films. And what they do is they specialize in bootleg Blu-rays. And uh, they have both the, the full Arrow box set uh, scanned and up-resed. And I believe they have the Fast and Pussycat Blu-ray available there. So unfortunately, because of the shenanigans of this company, I can only recommend that you seek this one out either illegally or just go ahead and buy a DVD from eBay. You can probably pick it up for about £10, I would say. And and like you said, Gally, this is why we talk about that cult films being a bit of a dying art. It's that because everything is is suddenly available on Tubi or Pubo and uh, Bing Bong. You're not going to get it on Prime uh, video. No, no, you really, really uh, And that's the thing. To... It's like, it's not that it's not worthy. It's just that you are going to have to work a bit harder if you want to, if you want to see the movie. Exactly. And, um, and we're all three of us are saying, uh, in, in sort of roughly equal measures, it's worth seeking out. Mm. Um, and so, and, yeah, and... no, thank you very much, Devlin. And as a, as an appendix, yes. as an annex, uh, to your, uh, incredibly mammoth episode, I think, uh, hopefully Russ, you know, we'll be we'll be very happy with uh, with the Rewind Movie Podcast, and we've been spreading the spreading the word. Yeah, I just hope some people get get intrigued that they really, really are worth seeking out. I, I I can't imagine many people who would listen to this who wouldn't find something to gain from it, especially this film. Uh, Devlin, uh, use as well talk about our our Russ Meyer merch along with our other merch. Uh, where can our team who have you know just been listening to this and without even watching the movie are like i need to get a poster or a t-shirt or a sticker or indeed a shower cap where where can they go <laughs> that's a good point well uh head to rewindmoviecast.com of course you'll find the previous episode that we've been discussing and the big essay and also this episode will we'll have some form of uh, blog post to accompany it there will be links there out to the t-mail store where i have been hoarding Ross Meyer material that I have been making. There's a new Faster Pussycat shirt, which has just gone up this week. Uh, and uh, we still have our Redbubble, which is confusing and weird. One day I'll make it better. Now, are they shower curtains or shower caps? You can get a shower curtain. Uh, I don't think they do shower caps, but you can get a Jet from Gladiator's shower curtain. Yeah, listeners, if you enjoy what we do, uh, this episode, Devlin's incredible uh essay episode and all the other previous episodes that we've done if you enjoy what we do please do like share subscribe a little review on spotify or apple or wherever you listen to us would be absolutely fantastic that's all we ask in exchange for your time that's it that's all we need um and yeah i think that's it then team should we should we say our goodbyes here's to the one and only ross meyer it's Gally in Glasgow, signing out. You won't find it down there, Columbus. It's Deborah in London. We don't like nothing soft. It's Matt in South Korea. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Mm-hmm.